0: Welcome to another day of the June Book Blast for this podcast. This is Rom-Com Friday, so enjoy all of these fun, lighthearted conversations about different rom-coms that I've read and profiled for the podcast. Enjoy. Paul Rudnick is the author of Playing the Palace. Paul is a novelist, playwright, essayist, and screenwriter who the New York Times has called one of our preeminent humorists. Paul is writing the book for, which means the script basically, for a Broadway musical adaptation of The Devil Wears Prada in collaboration with Elton John. And I just did an event with Lauren Weisberger and had her on my podcast too. And she's the author of the book, The Devil Wears Prada. Paul also wrote the script for the recent HBO special Coastal Elites, a socially distanced film about the COVID-19 pandemic, which stars Bette Midler, Dan Levy, Issa Rae, and Sarah Paulson. Paul's plays have been produced both on and off-Broadway and around the world, and include I Hate Hamlet, Jeffrey, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, Valhalla, Regrets Only, and The New Century. He wrote the screenplays for many iconic movies, including In and Out and The Addams Family Values. And his novels include Social Disease and I'll Take It, both from Knopf. Paul is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and his articles and essays have also appeared in The New York Times, Esquire, Vogue, and Vanity Fair. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Playing the Palace.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So many people, by the way, recommended your book to me that I hope you know that there's all sorts of buzz going around this book. Everyone's like, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? So anyway. Just
2: as oh, so thore that away. <laughs> oh, no, now I'm especially glad I, I'm here today.
0: <laughs> and I see why, because it's so great, it's so fun, it's so immersive. The main character is hilarious and I like love him so much. Um
2: oh, it's oh, great thank to find I'm like so glad.
0: A, such a, like, sort of self-deprecating, you know, he's so down on himself. I'm blanking on his name. What is his, what is his name? Carter. Carter. Carter Carter is so down on himself. And he's like, always just feeling like the worst. Like, what is anyone doing with me? Or I'm going to fail this. And and it's just so great to see him like triumph. And I don't know, it's just amazing. Like the underdog story, if you will. And with a sense of humor, it was just great. I loved it. Anyway. Oh,
2: thank you. Thank you. That, That makes me very happy. (laughs)
0: so why don't you tell listeners a little about what the book's about and how you came up with the story idea
2: which is oh well I wanted after everything we've all been through for the past year and the past many years before that I wanted a complete all-out romantic comedy you know the most giddy delicious escape and I've been thinking for actually quite some time about a royal romance. I'd had the title maybe 20 years ago, playing the palace, and I wasn't sure where this story should land until I came up with Carter Ogden, who is a very lonely New York event planner with roommates. He's been dumped time and again. He just is at that as low as you can get. And then one day, as can only happen in Manhattan, he manages to meet Prince Edgar, the crown prince of England. And they fall hopelessly and passionately in love against, you know, some of the largest imaginable obstacles, which is what I loved writing. So I think the core of the book is pretty much the moment when Carter decides he's going to take the Crown Prince of England to Piscataway, New Jersey as his plus one at his sister's wedding. Because I'm... A Jewish guy from New Jersey, and I thought, okay, what would that be like? You know, (laughs) so it's just—I hope—a real celebration of of romance and love and everything we're we're sort of yearning for in uh, beneath our masks.
0: I was surprised, by the way, at how cool his sister Abby was with having the crown prince sort of be in the audience, if you will, for her wedding unexpectedly. Right? Because he hadn't told her, and that she was like, "This is awesome." Or, I mean, anyway, she just loved it. It was great.
2: Yeah, she used much more foul language than you just. Yeah, did, I was debating is, I, if I should say you for that or not.
0: Tidying that up. Yeah, I I tidied <laughs> that.
2: But up. No, I love Abby too because she she's both a surgeon and someone who speaks her mind at every possible opportunity. And I just always admire people with that kind of exuberant confidence. You know, people who are very happy to tell you what to live, who to marry, and, you know, what, what to wear. So and she is just so protective and supportive of her brother. And I think they, as you're in the book, you find out why they bonded so deeply.
0: It's great. And yet there's still like, there's so much heart too. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not a frivolous, read like you get into some some real stuff you know like here's this one paragraph i really liked that carter said he said what i needed well this Actually, I'll read the previous line, too, because it's hilarious. I briefly considered tutoring people in poverty-stricken countries on creating Wonder woman themed (laughs) bat mitzvah centerpieces as a form of associate event, Architects Without Borders. Oh, my gosh. And then you said, what I needed was something I'd never confided to anyone, not even my dearest friends and family members, because it was such an impossible and yearned-for wish, something that I wanted so badly. It made me believe I had a soul. I wanted this one thing with such certainty that I knew it was more than a journal entry doodle or a challenge fantasy, which I needed to outgrow. It was who I was. That,
2: that, oh that. yeah, no, it's I. Oh, I'm so glad you picked that because yeah, Carter is somebody who has so many secret dreams, and that he thinks he's just reached that point in his life. He's about to turn thirty, where he thinks maybe this is all out of reach, and suddenly there are possibilities, which can be quite terrifying. And I think Carter backs away quite a bit, and Prince Edgar wonderfully they sort of draw each other out and they make each other's futures become possible and so yeah I wanted it to have some real underpinnings also it's a story about people of very different social status you know that there couldn't be a larger gap between these two between these two guys and you know in many ways it also made me think about Meghan and Harry you know the idea of Such an unlikely romance and how sometimes those are the very best. And those are the ones that I think the rest of the world tends to invest in because they can see themselves. Oh, my God, there is the slightest dreamy possibility that that could happen to me.
0: Well, it's, it's true. I mean, I feel like, especially with the Royals, like everybody wonders because it's of course an impossible, it's like an impossible dream. How could you, like, what is it like for them to live and how, what if, what if, like they'll have to get married? Like, I remember this when Prince William's oldest son was born and it was like right when my third child was born and I was like, maybe, maybe they'll meet and fall in love. Who knows? Like, what if, what if, why not her? Yeah, <laughs>
2: I and you should keep thinking that way. You never know. Exactly. Although I don't know people magazine. I don't know
0: that I would wish that on my daughter. I don't know. I don't know if it's something anymore to really aspire to. I mean, I grew up with like the Princess Diana giant coffee table books that I would like read every night before bed and that whole time of really idolizing the palace life whereas now I feel like we've all seen the underbelly if you will. But
2: Oh my god, yes.
0: But back in the day it was quite different. So I don't know. I won't push my daughter too hard.
2: (laughs) No, although I think you make a good point because also Princess Diana was one of the first royals, I think especially in in our lifetimes, who used her celebrity and her influence to do an awful lot of good in the world. And I think that's something that Carter and and Prince Edgar share, that sense of, no, it's no longer enough to just be rich and royal. You know, how can you turn that into a force for good? And I remember when Princess Diana you know, visited AIDS patients when yep. she made a point of showing up, and I think Meghan and Harry seem to be following in that tradition. So it's it's impressive because you think, yeah, that's that's a a prince and princess we could believe in. Yes.
0: And I love, by the way, that they at, at their first date, Carter and Prince Edgar, and you were like, <laughs> it's so funny when you were like, when he said like you can call me Ed or Eddie or something like that, and you were like, no, 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 <laughs> he's not an Ed, <laughs> he's not an Eddie. But that they sat down to this super formal meal at whatever fine dining, you know, super posh private room, whatever, and Carter's like, let's go to IHOP. <laughs> I feel like you need to do some massive collaboration with that chain. Like, have you talked to
2: them about, about doing that? I am waiting because I happen to be an enormous IHOP fan. Because when I was growing up in Jersey, anytime my family went to IHOP, it was a major occasion. It was a big treat. And I my, one of the things that bonded my, my longtime partner and I is that we visit IHOPs all across the country. Although I have always been a little confused, even though it stands for International House of Pancakes, I haven't come across any in other countries. So there's okay. there's a goal. But yeah, no, I, that is my dream for IHOP to maybe name a, a Rudy 2D Fresh and Fruity special after me. You know, <laughs> that was the first place we went, you know, when the lockdown was slightly lifting. And IHOP was very good about social distancing and wiping everything down with limited menu. But I thought okay, IHOP is here for us.
0: That's so funny. Yes, there was one when I was in in graduate school, there was an IHOP nearby. And that's sort of where I got to know my ex-husband. And we would like go to IHOP all the time. And it was open all the, I don't know, it was just great. I love IHOPs. I love pancakes, favorite food, by the way. So anyway. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. No, IHOP and Carvel, actually, which yes. is, I feel like I'm proving I'm from New Jersey. Yes. Um, but it's, yeah, no, IHOP, interestingly, is... A, a destination for families and often for criminals because it's open late. So it's, um, <laughs> you can meet all sorts of people at an IHOP.
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
0: Yes, but very good. And the sticky syrup and like you just got it all. I mean, you just like nailed it. And yes, Carvel as well. We have Fudgy <laughs> at all of our birthdays. <laughs> Fudgy the whale. A staple. If,
1: so Day.
0: Y- yes, father's. I should. Yeah. Now you don't even have to order anything. You just like go in. Anyway, so I know you have a big background in screenwriting and I loved in and out by the way. I watched that oh, right you. when it came out and everything. And this, of course, feels very visual. It feels to me a lot like Notting Hill where you have like all these this cast of characters and they all kind of band together and there's this dramatic ending. And I don't know. It just kind of reminded me of that in particular. What's it like writing fiction as a novel as opposed to screenwriting? And do you see this one ending up on the
2: screen as well? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned Notting Hill because that was the kind of movie I wanted to reflect in this novel, that it was also about someone because it's a regular guy, a guy who runs a bookshop who falls in love with one of the world's biggest movie stars. And I love the idea of a romance in that kind of spotlight, that that's different from equals, you know, or that's it entails all sorts of challenges that most of us don't have to have to deal with. So, and as far, I love screenwriting, but it's very different discipline. And I've learned through trial and error to usually let the material decide where it wants to land. So I'd be delighted to have Playing the Palace become a movie. But I think it was when I heard it in Carter's voice, which is something that can only really exist on a page, that was when it all came together for me so that it it certainly has a visual element, especially anytime you're entering Buckingham palace, you know, suddenly <laughs> that's what we're looking at. But yeah, I have always enjoyed sort of leapfrogging between the stage movies. Look at your beautiful dog.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> She's my podcast companion. She's always oh, here. That's,
2: that's so great. But yeah, so that screenwriting certainly has, informed my my work and and helped me with dialogue especially because you it, it makes you edit it makes you aware of how sometimes you know the visual can do what five pages of dialogue has to accomplish in a book or on stage but I've been very wary of making sure okay no this wants to be a book and take advantage of that
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, Carter did have such a great, vo- I mean, it's such a unique voice and yes, it was really fun. Very confessional in a way. Yeah, exactly. Talks. So what was it like writing this? Did you write it during COVID? I know you said that that was sort of, it was the antidote to that kind of fear to have a, an escape in this book, but when did you start writing it? Like when, what was that process like?
2: I started writing it actually a few years earlier, but I did all the final editing and the and the final galleys during the lockdown, which was such a blessing if, if a, a pandemic can ever be said to have, you know, an upside. But it was the pandemic, actually, I realized kind of made all of us assume a, the way a writer usually lives, which is alone in your room. Yep. But what I loved was being able to escape into this world of a certain glamour, a certain freedom, a certain wild amount of passion. It was just what I needed you know, so that I would I'd be working. So, you know, line editing and going through every every sentence and I'd be so happy. And then I'd look up and realize, oh, right, COVID. My mask is sitting on the desk. My surgical gloves are sitting over there. You know, this is a very different time. So it was great balance for me. And I thought, oh, OK, good. I hope I could share this with with readers, that sense of, yep, you're going to have a great time.
0: And we should also just discuss. I mean, this isn't just Notting Hill. This is, and it's not just the the class differences or the fame levels. But this is a this is two men who are in love, and that it, that doesn't often get you know central casting if, in a movie, you know, so to speak, right? But having the whole relationship focus on this romance. T- tell me about that, and deciding to to have that be the central feature.
2: Well, I didn't want to write a coming out story because I think those are very valid and there are plenty of books about prejudice, about the you know the enormous rejection that, that gay people could sometimes face. But I thought we need other stories as well, joyous stories. And I know so many openly and very happy gay people that I thought, yeah, that's the world I want to explore. So then I thought, let's have the two guys being gay a complete given. And you think... The royal family has been around forever. There are so many members and you know there are some LGBTQ people in there somewhere. So I thought, let's imagine that one of them had come out fearlessly and, and happily and said, you know, I, if I'm going to represent my country, I, they need to know who I really am and take it from there. So I loved trusting the reader that way. It was something it would, I remember when I was working on in and out and the studio was very nervous about it and how would it play in different parts of the country. And they found, no, this is a universal language. People, in fact, are also, I think, very eager for fresh stories, for a story they haven't heard a million times before. So it was really fun to say, okay, what would that look like? Also because I think protector has an additional layer of responsibility because he has to not only represent the royal family, but he becomes a gay figurehead. And that's not easy, that he's going to be criticized from every... Place on the political spectrum, that there will be people who feel he's not gay enough. He's not gay in the correct manner. He's too gay. And I thought, okay, that's something that only the first guy has to deal with or the first woman that it's. And I think we're starting now with uh, with Megan and Harry, with our first gentleman and married to Kamala with, you know, there are new roles with with Chastain and, and Pete. You know that I love watching how the world adjusts mm-hmm. and realizes to a great degree, what were we ever nervous about? You know, these are wonderful couples in love, just like everybody else, sometimes even more so. But I think that's also at the core of the book is when you're that out there on every level, when you are representing the English people, gay people, everyone, it's great to have a partner. You know, a support system is so important. So that, yeah, I just, I mean, I'm gay and I love writing about gay lives in a way that says... Nope, this is this is for everyone.
0: And poor Edgar has had a lot on his plate in addition to all of that, right? In addition to having to be a figurehead of a nation and a sexuality and everything, but he's gone through a lot of loss himself and it really has to figure out how to cope with that on a day-to-day basis. Even, you know, his special favorite room in his house and, you know, the old nursery and the memories that he carries with him. And, you know, that sort of sense of of loss and longing is also, unfortunately, super timely as well.
2: Yeah, that was why one thing I so admired about Harry was when he was so open about experiencing depression and about allowing himself to go into therapy, because you think of what the, the tragedy he's known since he was a small child, that that's very brave because the royal family was usually very private about any of those concerns and I think he realized no this is again a way I can use my position in the world to help other people and to d- remove a certain stigma from issues surrounding mental health and yeah I wanted Edgar to be somebody who had a lot of damage and I think it's also why when we meet his, his grandmother Queen Catherine she seems very hilarious forgave. oh my god you know, what one a of the, you know somebody, Carter meets her where he thinks, oh, maybe I'll be presented properly and formally. And of course, no, he runs into her at 2 a.m. in the yes. palace kitchen when he's you know stealing snacks. And it's just you know in his sweats, and it's just w- everything goes wrong. But I think you eventually realize that Catherine isn't just the toughest cookie on earth, she's so protective of her grandson and she so wants only the best for him. And she knows that okay, this is a guy who's experienced way more than his share of tragedy. And She doesn't want that to continue so that you find there are all sorts of facets to to that relationship as well. But, yeah, no, I mean, Edgar, I think it's it's also the the difficulty of dealing with personal trauma in a spotlight, you know, with the Internet breathing over your shoulder 24 seven. That's not something that the rest of us you know, have to deal with quite as much. So, And I think I wanted to create a character who dealt with it for the most part very well, who understood his privilege, understood his responsibilities, and tried desperately not to let it drive him crazy.
0: Wow. Well, I hope you, I mean, I'm sure you don't, but... I hope you bring these characters back in some way, shape, or form. I know it, like, tied up with such a neat sort of bow at the end. It was, like, all well, so well done. But I would love to see, like, what it's like next. Like, what happens next? And, like, I don't know. What if they decide to have a child? Or, like, I don't know. I, I just feel like you should keep these guys going. Oh, are you still there? I guess Paul had to go. But anyway, I was recommending to him that he – I think he should keep his characters going and – They are amazing and the book was fantastic. And I'm sorry we didn't get to hear if he's working on anything new and I'm sorry he didn't get to add any advice, but I love chatting with him about playing the palace. And thank you to Paul for joining and thank you all for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to part of my June book blast. I hope you enjoy it. Come back tomorrow for more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.